This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information and to find out how you can volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. That's L-I-B-R-I-V-O-X dot O-R-G. Recorded by Christy Nowak. The History of England from the Accession of James II by Thomas Babington Macaulay. Book One, Chapter Five, Part Twelve. It was Sunday, and his followers, who had for the most part been brought up after the Puritan fashion, passed a great part of the day in religious exercises. The castle field, in which the army was encamped, presented a spectacle such as, since the disbanding of Cromwell's soldiers, England had never seen. The dissenting preachers who had taken arms against popery, and some of whom had probably fought in the great civil war, prayed and preached in red coats and huge jack-boots, with swords by their sides. Ferguson was one of those who harangued. He took for his text the awful imprecation by which the Israelites who dwelt beyond Jordan cleared themselves from the charge ignorantly brought against them by their brethren on the other side of the river. Quote, the Lord God of gods, the Lord God of gods, he knoweth, and Israel he shall know, if it be in rebellion or if in transgression against the Lord, save us not this day. End quote. That an attack was to be made under cover of the night was no secret in Bridgewater. The town was full of women who had repaired thither by hundreds from the surrounding region to see their husbands, sons, lovers, and brothers once more. There were many sad partings that day and many parted never to meet again. The report of the intended attack came to the ears of a young girl who was zealous for the king. Though of modest character, she had the courage to resolve that she would herself bear the intelligence to Feversham. She stole out of Bridgewater and made her way to the royal camp. But that camp was not a place where female innocence could be safe. Even the officers, despising alike the irregular force to which they were opposed and the negligent general who commanded them, had indulged largely in wine and were ready for any excess of licentiousness and cruelty. One of them seized the unhappy maiden, refused to listen to her errand, and brutally outraged her. She fled in agonies of rage and shame, leaving the wicked army to its doom. And now the time for the great hazard drew near— the night was not ill-suited for such an enterprise. The moon was indeed at the full, and the northern streamers were shining brightly. But the marsh fog lay so thick on Sedgemoor that no object could be discerned there at the distance of fifty paces. The clock struck eleven, and the duke with his bodyguard rode out of the castle. He was not in the frame of mind which befits one who is about to strike a decisive blow, the very children who pressed to see him pass observed, and long remembered, that his look was sad and full of evil augury. His army marched by a circuitous path, near six miles in length, towards the royal encampment on Sedgemoor. Part of this route is to this day called War Lane. The foot were led by Monmouth himself. The horse were confided to Grey, in spite of the remonstrances of some who remembered the mishap at Bridport. Orders were given that strict silence should be preserved, that no drum should be beaten, and no shot fired. The word by which the insurgents were to recognize one another in the darkness was Soho. It had doubtless been selected in allusion to the Soho fields in London where their leader's palace stood. At about one in the morning of Monday the 6th of July, the rebels were on the open moor. 
But between them and the enemy lay three broad rhines filled with water and soft mud. Two of these, called the Black Ditch and the Langmore Rhine, Monmouth knew that he must pass. But, strange to say, the existence of a trench called the Bussex Rhine, which immediately covered the royal encampment, had not been mentioned to him by any of his scouts. The wains which carried the ammunition remained at the entrance of the moor. The horse and foot, in a long, narrow column, passed the black ditch by a causeway. There was a similar causeway across the Langmore Rhine, but the guide, in the fog, missed his way. There was some delay and some tumult before the error could be rectified. At length the passage was effected, but, in the confusion, a pistol went off. Some men of the horse guards, who were on watch, heard the report and perceived that a great multitude was advancing through the mist. They fired their carbines and galloped off in different directions to give the alarm. Some hastened to Weston Zoyland, where the cavalry lay. One trooper spurred to the encampment of the infantry and cried out vehemently that the enemy was at hand. The drums of Dumbarton's regiment beat to arms, and the men got fast into their ranks. It was time, for Monmouth was already drawing up his army for action. He ordered Gray to lead the way with the cavalry, and followed himself at the head of the infantry. Gray pushed on till his progress was unexpectedly arrested by the Bussex Rhine. On the opposite side of the ditch, the king's foot were hastily forming in order of battle. "'For whom are you?' called out an officer of the foot guards. "'For the king,' replied a voice from the ranks of the rebel cavalry. "'For which king?' was then demanded." The answer was a shout of King Monmouth, mingled with the war cry, which forty years before had been inscribed on the colors of the parliamentary regiments, God with us. The royal troops instantly fired such a volley of musketry as sent the rebel horse flying in all directions. The world agreed to ascribe this ignominious rout to Gray's pusillanimity. Yet it is by no means clear that Churchill would have succeeded better at the head of men who had never before handled arms on horseback, and whose horses were unused not only to stand fire, but to obey the rein. A few minutes after the Duke's horse had dispersed themselves over the moor, his infantry came running fast and guided through the gloom by the lighted matches of Dunbarton's regiment. Monmouth was startled by finding that a broad and profound trench lay between him and the camp which he had hoped to surprise. The insurgents halted on the edge of the Rhine and fired. Part of the royal infantry on the opposite bank returned the fire. During three-quarters of an hour the roar of the musketry was incessant. The Somersetshire peasants behaved themselves as if they had been veteran soldiers, save only that they leveled their pieces too high. But now the other divisions of the royal army were in motion. The lifeguards and blues came pricking fast from Weston Zoyland, and scattered in an instant some of Gray's horse, who had attempted to rally. The fugitives spread a panic among their comrades in the rear who had charge of the ammunition. The wagoners drove off at full speed and never stopped till there were many miles from the field of battle. Monmouth had hitherto done his part like a stout and able warrior. He had been seen on foot, pike in hand, encouraging his infantry by voice and by example. But he was too well acquainted with military affairs not to know that all was over. His men had lost the advantage which surprise and darkness had given them. They were deserted by the horse and by the ammunition wagons. The king's forces were now united and in good order. Feversham had been awakened by the firing, had got out of bed, had adjusted his cravat, had looked at himself well in the glass, and had come to see what his men were doing. Meanwhile, what was of much more importance, 
Churchill had rapidly made an entirely new disposition of the royal infantry. The day was about to break. The event of a conflict on an open plain by broad sunlight could not be doubtful. Yet Monmouth should have felt that it was not for him to fly, while thousands whom affection for him had hurried to destruction were still fighting manfully in his cause. But vain hopes and the intense love of life prevailed. He saw that if he tarried, the royal cavalry would soon intercept his retreat. He mounted and rode from the field. Yet his foot, though deserted, made a gallant stand. The lifeguards attacked them on the right, the blues on the left, but the Somersetshire clowns, with their scythes and the butt-ends of their muskets, faced the royal horse like old soldiers. Oglethorpe made a victorious attempt to break them and was manfully repulsed. Sarsfield, a brave Irish officer whose name afterwards obtained a melancholy celebrity, charged on the other flank. His men were beaten back. He was himself struck to the ground and lay for a time as one dead, but the struggle of the hardy rustics could not last. Their powder and ball were spent. Cries were heard of, Ammunition! For God's sake! Ammunition! But no ammunition was at hand. And now the king's artillery came up. It had been posted half a mile off on the high road from Weston Zoyland to Bridgewater. So effective were then the appointments of an English army that there would have been much difficulty in dragging the great guns to the place where the battle was raging, had not the Bishop of Winchester offered his coach horses and traces for the purpose. This interference of a Christian prelate in a matter of blood has, with strange inconsistency, been condemned by some Whig writers who can see nothing criminal in the conduct of the numerous Puritan ministers then in arms against the government. Even when the guns had arrived, there was such a want of gunners that a sergeant of Dumbarton's regiment was forced to take on himself the management of several pieces. The cannon, however, though ill-served, brought the engagement to a speedy close. The pikes of the rebel battalions began to shake. The ranks broke. The king's cavalry charged again and bore down everything before them. The king's infantry came pouring across the ditch. Even in that extremity, the mendip miners stood bravely to their arms and sold their lives dearly. But the rout was in a few minutes complete. Three hundred of the soldiers had been killed or wounded. Of the rebels, more than a thousand lay dead on the moor. So ended the last fight deserving the name of battle that has been fought on English ground. The impression left on the simple inhabitants of the neighborhood was deep and lasting. That impression, indeed, has been frequently renewed, for even in our own time the plow and the spade have not seldom turned up ghastly memorials of the slaughter, skulls and thigh bones and strange weapons made out of implements of husbandry. Old peasants related very recently that, in their childhood, they were accustomed to play on the moor at the fight between King James's men and King Monmouth's men, and that King Monmouth's men always raised the cry of Soho. What seems most extraordinary in the Battle of Sedgemoor is that the event should have been for a moment doubtful, and that the rebels should have resisted so long. That five or six thousand colliers and ploughmen should contend during an hour with half that number of regular cavalry and infantry would now be thought a miracle. Our wonder will, perhaps, be diminished when we remember that, in the time of James the Second, the discipline of the regular army was extremely lax, and that, on the other hand, the peasantry were accustomed to serve in the militia. The difference, therefore, between a regiment of the foot guards and a regiment of clowns just enrolled though doubtless considerable, 
was by no means what it now is. Monmouth did not lead a mere mob to attack good soldiers, for his followers were not altogether without a tincture of soldiership, and Feversham's troops, when compared with English troops of our time, might almost be called a mob. It was four o'clock, the sun was rising, and the routed army came pouring into the streets of Bridgewater. The ghastly figures which sank down and never rose again spread horror and dismay through the town. The pursuers, too, were close behind. Those inhabitants who had favored the insurrection expected sack and massacre, and implored the protection of their neighbors who professed the Roman Catholic religion, or had made themselves conspicuous by Tory politics, and it is acknowledged by the bitterest of Whig historians that this protection was kindly and generously given. During that day the conquerors continued to chase the fugitives. The neighboring villagers long remembered with what a clatter of horse hoofs and what a storm of curses the whirlwind of cavalry swept by. Before evening, five hundred prisoners had been crowded into the parish church of Weston Zoyland. Eighty of them were wounded, and five expired within the consecrated walls. Great numbers of laborers were impressed for the purpose of burying the slain. A few, who were notoriously partial to the vanquished side, were set apart for the hideous office of quartering the captives. The tithing men of the neighboring parishes were busied in setting up gibbets and providing chains. All this while the bells of Weston Zoyland and Chedzoy rang joyously, and the soldiers sang and rioted on the moor amidst the corpses. For the farmers of the neighborhood had made haste, as soon as the event of the fight was known, to send hogsheads of their best cider as peace offerings to the victors. End of Part 12